Everybody's going different directions. Is anybody counting seven and eight right now? It's a little past six in the morning, and Officer Steve McGill is making his first head count of the day. And we have to check and look, make sure that we do see a person in there or breathe in there, you know. Most of the inmates are asleep at this hour. Their cells dark except for the occasional glow of a television set. Steel grating covers the bars, so Officer McGill has to peek through a small rectangular door to make his count. In all, there are 93 men on death row here at Holman. The prison is located in rural Alabama, 60 miles north of Mobile, the nearest city of any size. Steve McGill grew up just down the road from here in the small town of Atmore. Now 35, he's been working at Holman Prison for eight years, the past two on death row. McGill cites the steady paycheck, the lack of heavy lifting, and the time off as reasons for staying at Holman. Of course, you do the same thing every day. But there's always something that comes up to break it. Monotony of things, I mean, it may be a fight, or it may be a, somebody started a fire on a tier, or, or, you know, to get you out of the routine. But we do the same thing over and over every day. The monotony this particular morning is broken when an inmate who's been moved from general population to a segregated cell near death row sets his mattress on fire, filling the entire cell block with smoke and sending McGill and the other officers scurrying. The culprit is quickly apprehended and escorted out, and the routine resumes. Officer McGill has a compact athletic build, a square jaw and a marine haircut. In his uniform, dark blue pants, a light blue shirt and badge, he could easily be mistaken for a police officer, except he doesn't carry a weapon, not even a baton like some of the other corrections officers. For McGill, security, at least his own security, doesn't seem to be a big concern. Maybe I'm the type of person that it takes a lot more to to make me fear things than this. You know, I take it serious, but maybe it takes something a lot more serious than this to make me think. You know, there's some things, I won't ride a roller coaster at Six Flags Over Georgia, I'm scared of them. You don't pull that already. Officer McGill has no qualms about standing here on the recreation yard among 30 convicted murderers, casually chatting with inmates about last night's ball game, about hunting or fishing or family as if they were at a neighborhood bar. You know, it's weird, most of these guys out here, I mean, to me, they're just, well, as I say this, they're not, I'm not gonna say they're ordinary folks, but they are humans. And uh, you can carry on fairly intelligent conversations with the majority of them, but you have to draw a line and realize what they're in here for. The truth is, death row inmates tend to be model prisoners. More manage to get off death row alive than are executed, so most are too busy working on their appeals to make trouble. Inmate Jesse Morrison says the officers aren't interested in making trouble either. Morrison, who was convicted of murder during an armed robbery in 1977 and has been on death row ever since, says corrections officers at Holman are, for the most part, professional and capable of understanding complex prison dynamics. It's not no longer like it used to be in the 60s or the 50s where you had, you know, tobacco chewing or whatever stereotype you want to put on officers. I mean, you have educated officers now, and they understand those things. 
Officer McGill chews tobacco and is college educated. He's also the consummate professional, especially when it comes time to perform an execution. In Alabama, they use the electric chair. At Holman, there's a name for it. Yes, sir. What they call a yellow mama. <clears throat> that thing sitting on the chair is a tester, which they tested about once a month. McGill is a member of the execution team at Holman. He accepted an invitation from the warden's office to join the team two years ago. I felt like that um, I wanted to be a part of it and um, because it was curious to me what took place. And um, that's the reasons I can, the only reason I can give is to do it. Members of the team are sworn to secrecy about just how executions are carried out, who straps the condemned inmate into the chair and who pulls the switch. McGill does talk openly, though, about his emotions during an execution. For some reason, I, that last day or two, I just, I kind of withdraw what's going on around me. I mean, I don't neglect my family or, or my duties at work, but you're not as, uh, I don't seem like I'm outgoing as much, I guess because I know what's fixing to happen. The first execution McGill took part in was that of Larry Heath. Heath had confided in McGill about his crime, hiring a hitman to kill his wife, about his faith, he became a born-again Christian while on death row, and in his final hours, about what was going to happen. I always felt that when he looked at me, when we come off the vision yard and he smiled, that he felt that it was someone there that he trusted. And I felt like that it made it somewhat easier for him instead of a bunch of stone faces, which were not. As Heath was brought into the death chamber, as he was being strapped into the chair, and as the warden read the death warrant, McGill says his mind began to race and he broke out in a cold sweat. I was nervous and um, throat was dry and, you know, that's somebody's child is supposed to get executed. McGill, who has two children of his own, wondered what had gone wrong in Larry Heath's life, in his childhood perhaps, that would lead him to this point. And he said a silent prayer of thanks for his own upbringing. Then the warden gave the signal and 2,100 volts of electricity were sent surging through Larry Heath's body. I don't want anybody to misinterpret this, but I admired Larry Heath for the way he died. Even though what he did was wrong, it was very wrong, and he knew it was wrong. But I admire the way he accepted his responsibilities, which was to die in an electric chair, and he took it, and he went on and he the old saying, I mean, he, he, he died like a man, I guess you'd say. Steve McGill has taken part in just two executions, and perhaps it's too soon to tell what sort of lasting impact the experiences will have. He says they don't haunt him, but then again, an execution is not something you can ever forget. Immediately afterward, he and a close friend on the execution team will get in McGill's four-wheeler and drive around for a while, trying to unwind. And then... I just, when I get home, I take a shower and lay in bed and just think about what I've experienced, what just happened, pray, and, uh, and then I'll go to sleep. And then the next day I wake up and it's still on my mind somewhat, but a few days it's gone. You know, but it, it kind of, I mean, it'll always be on my mind, you know, it'll always be there, but it doesn't 
hinder me as a person. For others, keeping a distance between the condemned man and the job is not that easy. Take the case of Kendall Cootie. Major Cootie was head of death row at Louisiana State Penitentiary at Angola in the mid-80s, a job that required him to take part in executions. He participated in six before dying of a heart attack in 1988 at the age of 53. Sister Helen Prejean spoke with Major Cootie just prior to the last execution. Prejean, a Catholic nun who counsels death row inmates, recounts parts of their conversation in her book, Dead Man Walking. I'm not sure how long I'm going to be able to keep doing this, he told me. I've been through five of these executions, and I can't eat, I can't sleep. I'm dreaming about executions. I don't condone these guys' crimes. I know they've done terrible things. I don't excuse what they've done. But I talk to them when I make my rounds. I talk to them. Many of them are just little boys inside big men's bodies, little boys. They never had much chance to grow up. Sister Prejean says Major Cootie had broken the first rule taught to officers at Angola, never relate on a personal level with inmates. Shirley Cootie was his wife of 13 years. She's been a security officer at Angola since 1975. There was a, a soft side to Kendall that in a prison setting, yes, there are rules, there are regulations, there are, this is the way things are done, but he always had the time to listen. And I guess when you're coming up on a date or death, you, you need someone to talk to. And Kendall was always a good listener. And... Uh, he got to know the inmates on a, on a personal level. And then to be involved in the process itself, to put them to death, it affected him a lot. He told me, I get home from an execution about two in the morning and I just sit up in a chair for the rest of the night. I can't shake it. I can't square it with my conscience, putting them to death like that. After the executions, when he would come home, it's almost like he was remembering the human side and putting that with the fact that we just put him to death. Uh, and we would talk about it, and, and it was like he was a human being, but you have to look at what he did in order for him to be sentenced to this crime. And you kind of have to, to put the two together for him, and, and, and then he accepts it. But Shirley Cootie says... Her husband never did fully accept his role in the execution process, and that over time, the stress and the emotional turmoil took its toll. Sister Prejean believes it took his life. At Angola, most of the security officers who work death row do not take part in execution. In a section of the prison where inmates are locked in their cells 23 hours a day, warehoused for as long as 15 years, the job primarily involves servicing the inmates, getting them fed, showered, and medicated. Tyrone! Tyrone! Field time, child time. It's early morning, and Sergeant Timothy Mayu is just beginning his 12-hour shift on death row. Mayu is in charge of 30 of the 43 death row inmates here, and he's working his way up and down the tiers, passing out an assortment of medication. Got that other? Sorry. This is the one I want, this is the one I don't want. That can give me stomach cramps. That's the side effects of it. And I have an ulcer. They should never even prescribe that to me in the first place. <laughs> Sergeant Mayu is the first to admit that pharmaceuticals are not his strong suit. 
Really, I, I'm not qualified to be passing out these pills. I don't know one pill from another. So, so I don't know whether he's getting the right pill or not. So far, we've never had no problem with one of them. A short man with a paunch, gray thinning hair, and crossed eyes behind a pair of thick glasses. Sergeant Mayu is the dean of the death row officers. He's 43, and he's been walking these tiers since 1976. Over time, he's earned the respect and admiration of the prisoners, inmates like Abdullah Hakim al Mumid, who's been on death row since 1986 for the murder of a deputy sheriff, and who needles Sergeant Mayu every chance he gets. Drugs. Yeah, I call him Uncle Mayu. Uh, you know, I like messing with him. And whenever he passes out the medications, I holler drugs. You know, and he always say, like he said this morning, I don't do drugs, you know. Yeah. And usually we tell him, well, you don't do anything, you know. Uh, but um, yeah, he's uh, he's he's real human, you know. He's he's lovable. Everyone here loves him, you know. Cause my you don't mess over anyone, you know. He don't mess over anyone. He's uh, yeah, he's a real friend, you know. Sergeant Mayu can be stern when he thinks the occasion calls for it. I'm not gonna tell you no more. Put them boxes on the bed. Well, you keep saying okay. Why you ain't got them under that? Here, he gives a second warning to an inmate who has refused to remove some boxes from his upper bunk, a violation of prison rules. Come back after a while, you better have them under there. One of the mental cases, you gotta stay on him quite a bit, you know, to get him to do something. But even when he's playing the heavy, Sergeant Mayu is a bit of a softy. Inmate El Mumet says most officers would have written the violator up without so much as a warning. But Sergeant Mayu says that's not his style. You have some bad officers that just don't care anything about death row inmates. Uh, I'm not gonna say I really care for, for the inmates, but I don't give them no trouble and uh, they don't give me any trouble. You know, we try to get along as best we can. They got to be there and I got to have the job. So I will make the most of it. Come down and wait. You ain't going nowhere. It's one o'clock in the afternoon. Sergeant Mayu has been on the job for eight hours now. It's getting hot and the inmates are getting demanding. I need to make a leader call. I got talking about getting released. Sergeant Mayu is running back and forth from tier to tier, putting one inmate on the phone to call his attorney, letting another out of his cell to shower. It's starting to get on my nerves now. This routine will continue for the better part of the next four hours until five o'clock when Sergeant Mayu makes his final rounds of the day. Sergeant Mayu says he plans to retire from prison work in a few years after he qualifies for his 20-year pension. Most officers don't work much longer than that. As one put it, there's too much anger and despair and hopelessness. For those who work on death row, there's the added burden. Officer Steve McGill describes it as the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde syndrome. Having to be tough and unwielding when it comes time to enforce rules and regulations. Then being a friend, or at least showing some empathy when a death row inmate's time is up. You all right? All right. Sergeant Mayu makes one last stop at the cell of the inmate who earlier in the day had refused to remove the boxes from his upper bunk. The boxes are in their place now, and Sergeant Mayu gives the inmate a cigarette, lights it, and heads for home. See y'all on Monday. All right. I'm Dan Collison. Bye. Hi, sir, Mayu. All right.
Dai man. Non c'è con che i robot. Prego.